This morning, uh, I have the pleasure of continuing our series, not just on the names of God, but here during Advent, uh, the four names that Isaiah prophesied uh, of the coming Christ. And so, uh, as you know, uh, John Bryant uh, was, was with us at the beginning of December, and he preached uh, an incredible message on the very first of those four wonderful counselor. We had uh, Pastor Sandra as well with Mighty God, and this morning, I'm here to talk to you about Everlasting Father. Before I do, let's pray. Lord, uh, over the next few moments, I ask that through your word, through uh, the, the time that we spend here studying your nature and character. Lord, reveal yourself to us in new ways and in old ways, in ways that bring us comfort and peace and that fire us up and give us direction. Lord, we are here because of you. We give our time to you. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. I want to start by asking you a question. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty easy question. Uh, but you're probably not going to like it. How's your faith doing? This is a question that, uh, oh, not that yet. How's your faith doing? This is a question that John Wesley asked several times of the pastors and, and preachers and teachers that he mentored. He also asked it of himself. He had a whole lot of questions he actually asked. Some of those are some really hard questions. Like, in what ways am I communicating to people intentionally or unintentionally that I may be better than I am? He asked himself that every single day. That's, that's a hard question to ask yourself. But you would ask, how's your faith doing? Because we recognize that earth is kind of hard sometimes. And the amount of faith, can, we can feel like it ebbs and flows. You know, like there are just some times that are really hard. Israelites showed us that time after time after time all throughout the Old Testament. It gives me so much hope, honestly. I don't look back and go, ugh, why couldn't they just get it right? I realize I would have done no better. So how's your faith? The reason I ask that question is because the next question I want to ask you that we're going to start with and then we're going we're to move on, but we'll come back to it, and that is how sure are you about your salvation? How sure are you about your salvation? You know, I like to ask that question to uh, Christians as I interact with them, as I get to know them, and people will kind of hesitate, almost always, when you ask them that question. If you've ever been to a doctor's office, you might be familiar with this, um, this like scale. From It goes from 1 to 10, and it's got pictures on it to help you communicate how you're feeling. Right, so no pain is zero. All the way up to number 10, worst pain imaginable. You're doubled over, you can't get any words out and you just point to that one. So when I ask, how's your faith doing? When I ask, how sure are you about your salvation? I want you to think about this scale. I'm not gonna ask you to, to write it down or to shout it out or to tell the people around you your number from zero to 10. We're gonna come back to this at the end, but I want you to make a mental note right now, honestly, honestly, where you fall on that scale. And hopefully by the end of this morning together, you will be at 10 if you aren't currently. Now this past week I was, uh, I was having a conversation with Dee. Is Dee here this morning? Mm, she's in the nursery. Okay, I was gonna make a joke if she wasn't about like not skipping church, it's dangerous, but she's 
literally serving God, so, okay. <sighs> anyway, so I was having a conversation with Dee this past week, and I found out that she loves France and the French language, and I do too. I uh, took French in high school, I took French in college. As I was about to graduate, I found out that I had enough credits in French, I could get a minor in it, uh, but I didn't know that, so it was too late. <laughs> so. I have an unofficial minor in French, and um, if, if you know a little bit of French, or if you've uh, ever looked at that language before, the scale might mean something different to you in France when we talk about the pain scale, because um, pain means bread. And so uh, no, no pain, no bread, right? Mild pain is, is white bread. White bread, I grew up on that stuff. Anyone else? I'm sorry. Yeah, that's, that's rough. Uh, worst pain imaginable, that's, that's just moldy bread, so. But anyway, uh, there's uh, this, this, this um, tendency we have to talk about uh, pain as something that builds us up, as something that uh, edifies us over time. We're going to read in Romans shortly how Paul talks about pain, about trials, about difficulty, and how they shape and mold us into the likeness of Christ uh, so the, the world is, is kind of right when, when they say this phrase, uh, no pain, no gain. I have been through a lot in my life. In uh, 2016, 2017, you guys mostly all know this, lots and lots of pain. So I'm expecting my glorified body like any day now. Like it's going to be really good. I hope it kind of looks like Thor, you know, Chris Hemsworth. I mean, look at that. Like his, his muscles have muscles. It's... <laughs> Anyway, uh, you, guys, you guys put up with a lot for me. I appreciate you. Um, <laughs> so, everlasting Father. Uh, when I was looking at this passage in Scripture, I found out a couple things. One, the only place in the Bible where it says everlasting Father is Isaiah 9. And so when I was trying to figure out, like, okay, like what can I dig into, it was really hard because there was one verse to go to over and over again. And so I decided to take a step back look at the concept of everlasting, and, and ask the question, okay, what, what else is everlasting other than fatherhood? And so we've got some that are gonna kind of show up here on the screen, and these are actually in order from the Old Testament leading up to Isaiah. You have the everlasting covenant that God made with us through Abraham, delivered through Moses, uh, the everlasting possession of the promised land that he promised the Israelites, the everlasting arms of God that we can lean on. One of my very favorite hymns in the church, like top two. An everlasting, um, everlasting, which is weird. I don't really, I don't really get that one, so we're just gonna ignore it. Um, <laughs> uh, no, we'll, we'll come back to it later. Uh, then there's the everlasting inheritance, which is promised to us if, like Abraham, we have faith in God, and like Abraham, it was counted to him as righteousness, speaking of which, everlasting righteousness of God. The last two are my favorite on this list. The first one, that God is the way everlasting. There is an eternal path to God, an unending path to God. And that was realized for all of us when Jesus came. He is the way everlasting. And the last one before we get to Isaiah chapter nine is kingdom. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His, his dominion has no end. It's eternal, it's everlasting, it's forever. And then you get to Isaiah chapter nine and we see 
everlasting Father. You know what's weird about that? It's talking about Jesus. And I think that for like a long time, I just really didn't think about it too much because I was like, well, maybe you just slipped one in there for God the Father, you know? Uh, but, but that's not actually the case. It is about Jesus. Jesus is the everlasting Father. So what does it mean? If Jesus is the Son of God, how could he be the everlasting Father? Well, like I tend to say, if something in Scripture doesn't make sense, it's probably our interpretation of it, not the Scripture itself that's wrong. And so if Jesus is the everlasting Father, but he is the Son of God, there's a couple things that we can look at. One, where Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, I and the Father are one. See, God is, is one in three persons between the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They are co-equal. They are a him. There's not three gods, there's, there's one. And so there are traits of fatherhood to Christ. And then aside from that, if we get away from the, the theology of the Trinity for a moment and just talk practically, Jesus is a king who treats his subjects more like children than slaves. He is our father spiritually. He is our father sacrificially. He is our father lovingly. And we're going we're gonna to jump into Romans 5, and then we'll come back, and I've got a couple bullet points that I'm going to read you uh, about what it means that he is our everlasting father. But uh, Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1, and we're going to read through, read through all of them. If you come to my Bible study on Tuesday morning, you hear me say this all the time, I'm going to actually read the whole passage and not interrupt myself. Maybe like 30% of the time I succeed, but I'm going to try really hard. All right, Romans 5, starting in verse 1. Uh, if you're following along on like a phone or something, this is the New American Standard translation, just so you know. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we celebrate in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we celebrate in our tribulations, trials, difficulties, hard times. Uh, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance brings about proven character, and proven character brings about hope, and hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which was given to us for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And I'm going to interrupt myself here because I want you to underline, think about, circle, highlight, whatever you do, ungodly. Because it's going to be really important when we go back to talk about our assurance of salvation, what it means that we were ungodly. All right, moving on. Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7, for one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for the good person someone would even dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, and that yet, yeah, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, well, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also celebrate in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Think about that line. We received reconciliation. You know, it's really interesting from an earthly perspective, we can never receive reconciliation. We have to be a part of it. More often than not, we're told we got to take the first step. Extend the olive branch. Apologize even if you think you're right. Call them up because life is short. It's really interesting. We don't have to take the first step. We actually don't have to take any steps because it's been given to us. We are justified by grace through faith. Did you know that praying the sinner's prayer doesn't make you a Christian? Did you know going to church doesn't make you a Christian? What makes you a Christian is your faith in Christ. And I would argue you can say a lot of prayers and not have any attachment to the words. You can say a lot of prayers and have no faith. But if you have faith in Jesus, then he who is uh, holy and, and just to forgive will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I love preaching for you guys. You guys know the word. Cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So we're going we're gonna to put a pin in that passage. We're going to go back and we're going to talk about these, these very quick three bullet points. And then I'm going to throw a big old wrench into everything else that I had planned for the sermon. We're going to go in a direction where I don't have any slides. I apologize. Um, but uh, during worship, something kind of got stirred up in me that I want to share. So uh, we have, uh, go ahead and go back to what does it mean that he uh, is our everlasting father? The first point is that we have been reconciled with God through Jesus Christ. We were talking about that a little bit. That reconciliation extended from God to us, not the other way around. It was impossible for us to make ourselves right with God. Point number two, he has adopted us as his children. And this right here, that bullet point, adopted us as children, is going to be so vital when we ask this question again about the assurance of your salvation. So, so keep that in mind, ungodly and adopted as children. Final bullet point on this, we are no longer enemies of God. As Paul says elsewhere in his letters, we were children of wrath, but we aren't anymore. How sure are you of your salvation? When I ask that question, like I said earlier, people tend to hesitate. And then they'll say, ah, well, yeah, like, like a nine out of 10. I'm pretty sure, pretty sure. Okay, well, why not a 10? Well, um, I don't know, I've just, you know, done things. Interesting things. It's almost always when you ask someone who doesn't have a 10 out of 10 in their own personal assurance, every single time I've walked with someone through that question, every single time it comes back to their sin that causes them to doubt their salvation. I need you guys to hear something this morning. When Christ died for us, what's the first word I told you to remember? What were we? ungodly. He died for us when we were ungodly. God shows his great love for us in this and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were ungodly. We were children of wrath. We were enemies of God. Do you know what you are now? 
You're an adopted child of God. How much more gracious can he be now? You were once his enemy, and now you're the apple of his eye. You were once a child of wrath, but he looks at you, and he sees himself in you, and he sees Jesus in you. Now, when you talk about salvation, sometimes people will get really you know, grateful that uh, God came and died for them, and, and probably no one in here would ever say this, I'm sure. But we kind of get into this moment where it's easy for us to think, well, yeah, God loved me. I mean, I didn't deserve it. I couldn't earn it. But I mean, I guess he saw something in me, you know, and in humanity. And he wanted to, he wanted to save us. We had a lot of potential. He saw nothing in us. He saw something in himself. His nature, his character is why he saved us, not because we have a lot of potential. He didn't save us because we could be really good. No, he actually saved us because it's impossible for us to be really good. He saved us because of who he is, not what we have done. We are saved. Here's, here's another one. I'm going to throw this out there. It's funny. I brought this up a few weeks ago in my Bible study, and I told them I'm never going to say this on Sunday morning because it's so easily misinterpreted. But now I'm standing up here and I'm just like, I got that intrusive thought, like I'm just going to throw it out there. <laughs> Which is funny, four years ago, three, three years ago, uh, when I was up here, I, I said something um, that uh, was a little risky to say, but thankfully you guys received it. And that is that Christ didn't come here to die for your sins. That's not why he came. He came here to reconcile us with God and to indwell us in order to do that, he had to forgive us first. Forgiveness of sins is not salvation, it is a means to salvation, a means to eternal life. It's a lot deeper than just the forgiveness of sins, okay? So here's, here's what I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw a little wrench in here. You were actually saved by works. They're just not yours. Jesus did a work on the cross. Don't tell, don't tell me you can watch the Passion of the Christ and not have a moment where you realize he did something. And you know what he did? He didn't just turn away God's wrath. He absorbed it into himself and eliminated it. After he died, it was finished. The wrath of God satisfied. So at the right time, while we were helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. We were ungodly. Couldn't deserve it, couldn't earn it. And he died for us still. This is about the point we're gonna go on a tangent. So I, I apologize for that, but you know, God does his thing. So uh, hopefully he's doing it now. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I've been mulling that passage over for, for the last few weeks, trying to figure out what it means beyond just the in your face bit. How does that change how I live? How does that change how I interact with God, my relationship to him? And I'm going to ask a question. You don't have to answer. Just think about it. Did God know Adam and Eve were going to fail in the garden? Yeah, he knew. You know what's interesting is I get asked this question. 
probably a lot of us do, Pastor Scott, I'm sure you have been asked this question, and that is, if God knew that Adam and Eve were going to fail so spectacularly, why didn't he just take the tree out of the garden? Why, like, there's so many ways for him to have avoided the fall without taking out our free will. Why didn't he do one of those? Why didn't he just remove the possibility of temptation? Why didn't he tell Satan he wasn't allowed in the garden? There's a question. You guys know that, like, Satan was in heaven at one point, even after the fall. Job, Satan talked to God. And so why did God allow it? I've had a lot of really unsatisfying answers in my life to that question. Really unsatisfying. Because at the end of the day, I'm like, I'm an idiot, and I can figure out that there's like a lot of ways (laughs) to avoid the fall without messing up free will. So the free will question has has always, like to me that answer is, is a weak argument. This is going to be a little bit, but we are going to go back into Romans and we are going to pick up where we left off. We're gonna read through verse 20 and, uh, and we're gonna see if we can find ourselves an answer to this question of why did God allow the fall? And it kind of goes back to um, what Paul was saying previously uh, about forgiveness of sins, about dying for the ungodly. And uh, if you go to Romans 5, we're just going to jump right back in to, uh, we'll start at verse 11 and we'll continue from there. Let's see, verse 11, so not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation, verse 12. Paul's about to say the same thing five different times, hopefully it sticks, (laughs) he repeats himself a lot here. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. We needed the law to see how depraved we were. Nevertheless, verse 14, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Interesting. He didn't say Adam to Jesus. He said Adam to Moses. Moving on. (laughs) Death uh, death reigned uh, from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, Jesus Christ uh, brought overflow. No, I jumped ahead. I apologize. For if many die of the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. And if that word is is hard to understand, we've broken it down in, in my Bible study, justified. It's just as if you've never sinned to be acquitted, <clears throat> so to be um, uh, brought justification. Verse 17, for if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more, think about that word, we'll come back, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus 
Christ. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience, again repeating, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so the trespass might increase. And again, it's, he's, he's kind of a, it's kind of a play on words. He's not saying that the law came and then suddenly we we're sinning a lot more. It's that he's shown a bright light on our sin, our awareness of it magnified. So um, the law brought, uh, was brought in so the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, what was he saying there? He wasn't just saying that, that Jesus fixed Adam's mistakes. Right, that's, that's really not what he's saying. And this, this, is, this is what has been like blowing my mind for the last couple of days. The question, if God knew about the fall, why would he allow it? Why couldn't he just remove temptation? Here's what's really interesting. I think that our life is better after the fall. Why? Adam and Eve in the garden, they were not God's children. They were not adopted as co-heirs in Christ. That happened on the cross. And so the, the, the pain and the awfulness and the things that we have experienced here on earth, as Paul writes about them, we have joy in our suffering. That's wild. How can we have joy in our suffering? Why? Because we know that it makes us like Christ. We share in the fellowship of his suffering. James 1, to count it all joy, brothers and sisters, as you face various trials and tribulations. How can we do that? By recognizing that life in Christ is better than life in the garden. Because while, yeah, Eden was perfect, we weren't his children. We weren't adopted. We were not grafted into him. The indwelling Christ, the indwelling spirit, these came after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Without the crucifixion, we don't get them. Without the fall, there's no need for the crucifixion. So I, I contend that our life with the indwelt Christ is better than merely walking with him in a garden. There was no eternal security. There was no afterlife in heaven. It was just a perfect, albeit perfect, garden we would have never known the joy of life in Christ. We would have never known the peace that life in Christ brings. So that question, how sure are you of your salvation? When, when Christ died for us, we were ungodly. When he died for us, we were unrighteous. We were terrible sinners. 
Now we're children of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are made righteous. We're cleansed of all unrighteousness. And so I ask you, friends, one to 10, where's your assurance of salvation? Because of what Jesus did, how he did it, the timing of what he did, and the fact that he did it while we were ungodly, I'm going to be honest with you guys, I'm a 10 out of 10. I have zero doubt whatsoever because I know that I can't screw it up because I didn't make it. I didn't bring reconciliation. I didn't bring salvation. I didn't bring hope to myself. These are free gifts of God. And so because of that, I'm not worried about my salvation. I'm not worried about having eternal security in heaven. Why? Because I know that I know that I know that if Christ died for me while I was ungodly, how much more is that compassion and that love and that grace available to me today as a member of his family, not an enemy, but a child? One of my favorite parables that Jesus ever taught it's parables of the worker in the vineyard, right? This, this idea that uh, this guy went to the marketplace and at the beginning of the day, he got up a bunch of workers, said, come work all day, I'll pay you a Daenerys. Goes back out at 9 a.m., finds a bunch of workers, come work my field, I'll pay you a Daenerys. Does it again at 12, at 3 o'clock, and then right before the end of the day, right before the bell rings, he goes back out, he gets a whole bunch more. And then at the end, at six o'clock, they come in, he pays them all, and he pays each of them a Daenerys. And the people who had been there all day are really grumbly. Like, we've been here all day. Why, why wouldn't you give us more than, like, this person's only been here five minutes, right? And, and so when he did that, he was making a point that it's not about the work that you do. It's about the generosity in his heart. He gives equally to all. Because he loves all. His spirit is in you and he, he loves you. And when we read that story, we can get uncomfortable. We can kind of identify like, well, yeah, okay. They worked for 10 minutes. They got a Daenerys. The other people worked for like 12 hours. That's not fair. The reason we have a problem with that parable is because we view ourselves as the people who have been there since 6 a.m. We're not. We're all last minute. We're all at the very end of the day. Every single one of us. That's the point of the parable is that none of us have been there all day. We just got here. And in his great generosity and his great mercy, he is bringing us into the fold. We just got here. I'm going to end in just a moment. But first, I want to read you this quote uh, from R.C. Sproul. Uh, if you're familiar with him, you know that he is a fantastic uh, speaker and theologian and pastor and uh, it's funny, I had a friend on Facebook randomly share this quote. I read it, and I was like, this is amazing. It, it like, so perfectly ties into what we're talking about. And R.C. Sproul wrote, wrote this. If the lesson you get from Jesus hanging with sinners is that you should hang with sinners more, you're confused with who you are in this story. We're the sinners. We're the ungodly. We're the enemies of God. We're the children of wrath. We're the unrighteous. We're the undeserving. He hangs out with us, inside of us forever. I pretty much, I told you guys three years ago when I gave my first sermon that basically every time I preach, it's going to come back to the indwelling Christ. Guess what? 
here we are again, the hope of glory, the eternal, eternal adoption into his family. A king, Jesus, who treats his subjects more like children than like slaves. In my life, I have been through a lot. And I know that everyone here has. For most of my life, I I questioned my security because I know more than anyone except Jesus the, the depths of my own depravity. I know the things that I'm ashamed of. I know the, the rotten, bad things that I've done in my life. And I'm not being like fake humble right now. I've done like awful things. He died for me. He died for me. Not because of me, but because of him. He looked at me and what did he see in me? He saw vile, wretched, worthless sin. But he cleansed me of that unrighteousness. And I'm not perfect. I still sin. I still screw up. But now how much more security do I have that I'm his child? I'm no longer ungodly. And neither are you. Not if you've prayed the sinner's prayer, but if you put your faith in Christ. You are now Adopted, You are now cleansed of unrighteousness. It doesn't mean you don't sin. It just means that sin is no longer going to pay you your deserved wage. So I, I don't know what you've done. I know what I've done. I don't know what makes you hesitate when I ask on a scale of 1 to 10, where are you? Or if you would say 9 or 8 or 2. I don't know what has led you to that place where you're just like, man, I am just so bad. Has anyone ever told you that you're bad? Has anyone ever told you that you could never do anything good? That's not a verse you're ever going to find in the Bible. Because when you give yourself to Christ and he indwells you, you are made righteous. I want you to hear that this morning. I want you to hear that. You are made righteous and holy and blameless in his sight. I'm going to pray a quick blessing, and I'm going to have Pastor Scott come up and close the service. It's the blessing I pray literally at the end of every single sermon. It's just a passage from Jude. Listen to the words this time. I'm not going to ask you to stand. I want you to maybe even just close your eyes. Hear these words from the word of God to you. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling to present you faultless and blameless before his great throne of mercy with exceeding joy be all power and dominion and glory and kingdom forever and ever and ever amen amen thank you pastor scott